Well, good morning, church. As we, uh, we, we turn to this very familiar account in the book of Daniel today, we, we need to recognize we're, we're turning to a very dark and incredibly disorientating time in the history of Judah. I mean, as we're going to quickly see, the siege of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile of Daniel and his friends was so much more than a military conquest. It was an existential crisis for the people involved. It rocked them to the deepest foundations of their relationship with God, their understanding of his covenant, and what it meant to be God's people. Questions that the Jews are asking right now when the events in chapter 1 are happening. Has God abandoned them for good? I mean, I mean, how should they live in light of the events? How should they live in light of this, this event, which is certainly God's discipline? Even more. How about for Daniel and his friends? Did faithfulness to God even matter now that they were living in this foreign land? Does it matter? Would God do anything for them? Could God do anything for them? Or were they completely cut off from his power and left to their own devices? Questions. And the truth of the matter is, as Christians, we can wrestle with these very same questions. When we face the debilitating crises of our lives, Our crises are different. Some of them are similar, but never the same. Questions plague our thoughts, but they rarely cross our lips. Will God do anything? Can God do anything? Does faithfulness to God even matter? These are our questions too. And as we're going to go through this first chapter and through this entire book, Daniel answers these questions with a resounding yes. Yes. And that's because wherever you find yourself in life, God is always there. That's what we see, especially in this first chapter. Wherever you find yourself in life, God is always there. We're going to see it three clear ways in the text today. God is present in his sovereign reign. We're going to see God present in his silent reign. And as we get to the very end of this account, we're going to see God present in actually his gloriously subversive reign. God is there. So let's turn to this this present sovereign reign of God in verses 1 and 2 as we look at this account. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, that is Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. You know, as I was preparing this last week, I was honestly struck by how terse and unemotional these first two verses are. 
I mean, they mark a monumental shift on the world stage and a cataclysmic development in Judah's spiritual history. This, this is huge. And they're covered with almost no emotion. With just a handful of words. See, on the world stage, it's roughly 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the crown prince of Babylon, has just decimated the Egyptian army at the Battle of Carchemish, just, just north of Judah. And in an effort to, to consolidate his victory and to kind of press out the outskirts of his empire, he's turned his army south to subjugate the regions of Syria and Palestine and Judah. He, he's pressing for the win. He's taken ground. He has an opportunity. He's taken more. Yet in this first siege, there's actually more than one siege. In this first siege, he he doesn't destroy the city. He doesn't destroy the temple. He he doesn't haul the entire population off into exile, which he would eventually do in 587 B.C. Rather, in this account, he inflicts enough casualties to secure Jehoiakim's surrender, to secure Jehoiakim's pledge of loyalty, And this pledge of loyalty required him to surrender the children of both the nobility and the royal family and the instruments of worship that the priests used in the temple of God. That's what he's taken on this first siege. And when he departed, he carried the king and the children back to Babylon and he placed the treasures of God himself in the temple of his idol Marduk. I mean, this is utterly devastating to the people of Judah. Because in the ancient world, the fortunes of a people and their God were, were viewed together. They were one and the same. A loss in battle was taken as a sign that their nation's God was weaker than the other God. The victor's God must be stronger. It was taken as a sign that their God was no longer able to protect them. That's how these things were viewed. See, see, this catastrophe left the people of Judah with the agonizing questions. Where is God? Is is God still in control? Did did this loss prove that he, he couldn't keep his promises to them? Even more, was he still powerful enough to rescue them? Is there any way for this thing to get turned around? Is this just the end? Is it over? But, but I think that that's the reason why at verse 2, Daniel gives his readers a theological explanation. What is a theological explanation? What does he want everybody to know right out of the gate so they don't get the wrong picture? And the Lord gave. The Lord gave. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. How did, how did these temple, these, these artifacts in the temple, precious gold items, how could they ever be taken from the temple of the Lord? How come God didn't permit it? It's because God gave them. God gave them. See, what does Daniel want his readers to see? He, he wants them to see that God is exercising his active sovereignty in the history of his people. 
to the question, why did Jerusalem fall and why was the temple of God robbed? The answer, according to verse 2, is that Judah's demise is not merely a matter of military conquest. No, from the very beginning of this book, we're told that Israel's God is the God who directs history according to his sovereign will. The Lord gave willingly, intentionally, and actively. God gave. But at the very same time, this verse confronts us with God's faithful sovereignty. Not merely an active sovereignty, but God's faithful sovereignty. What what I mean by this is that the events in these verses are the direct result of God fulfilling his promises and his prophetic warnings to his covenant people. In Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God declared the blessings and cursings of his covenant with Israel. The stipulations, right? In love, he warned them that repeated rebellion would result in increasing punishment and ultimately culminate in exile if they wouldn't repent of their sin. At the same time, he gave them glorious promises, He laid it all out on the front. It wasn't fine print. It was in bold capital letters for everyone to see. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2, speaking of the blessings, God says this, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come to you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the old covenant. He said, just, it's yours. Remember, God gives them promises and delivers promises. Houses they didn't build, cisterns they didn't dig, vineyards they didn't plant. God gave. But if we look at Leviticus 26, verses 31 through 33, speaking of the warnings, this is at the towards the end of the list of warnings, really really getting to the high point of God's discipline if they continue in their sin. He says, I will lay your cities to waste. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I, I won't smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself, listen, I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be desolation and your cities shall be a waste. But why would God do that? He tells us in Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. What's the root cause of the sin? What's the root cause of rebellion? You didn't serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Notice, notice, you you, you have an abundance. I've given you an abundance. But you had abundance and, and you weren't joyful and you weren't thankful about it. It wasn't enough for you. 
You didn't even think that I gave it to you. Therefore, you shall serve the enemies whom the Lord your God will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. These are the warnings that God gives. It helps us understand and to see the true heart of sin and our rebellion for what it is. As Dale Ralph Davis points out in his commentary on Daniel, we we tend to think of God's faithfulness in more positive terms, but sometimes his faithfulness is is manifest in the negative. Yet, Yet in this severe faithfulness, there's always reason for hope. There's always reason for hope in the most severe faithfulness because if God is so diligent over his threats of judgment, he will surely treat his assurances of grace and deliverance with exacting care. Even in the severe faithfulness, there is reason for hope. See, don't miss this. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. He didn't know he was merely an instrument of God's discipline. He doesn't have a clue. I mean, he's an instrument that God is going to use ultimately for the good of his people. Yet an instrument nonetheless as a kingdom, Babylon is an instrument that God is going to then discard on the ash heap of history. We actually see it happen in the book as the Persian kingdom takes over Babylon. Babylon. See, friends, this is how God works his sovereign will and discipline in the world and on the world stage. But but as we transition to the rest of the chapter, we're, we're also reminded of God's gracious sovereignty and his silent reign. There's a silent reign over the very people who were swept up in his judgment. They were swept up in his judgment, but he had not cast them off. He's still reigning over his people in the midst of the judgment and he's reigning for their good. He gave Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar but he will silently reveal his active presence to his people as he gives Daniel favor in the eyes of his overseers and he gives Daniel and his friends the gifts they need to serve at the highest levels of the kingdom. So turning our attention now to this, to this silent reign of God that we start to see in verses 3 through verse 16. We're not going to read all of it because there's so much to read through here. But the most notable thing that we see as we get to verse 3 and following is that when Nebuchadnezzar takes these children from Jerusalem, what does he not do? He doesn't imprison them. He doesn't torture them. He doesn't kill them. Does he? It's kind of interesting. He, he, he doesn't do any of those things. And that's and it's because Nebuchadnezzar has really a twofold goal in mind in taking these teenagers. That's what they are. They're teenagers. 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. That's Daniel and his friends. This, this isn't 30-year-old dudes. That's who we're talking about. 
He sees these children of the royal family and the nobility to destabilize the political structure in Judah, number one. And he did that by, by, by making it clear, I have your kids. You mess with me? Remember, I have your kids. And at the same time, he's actually taking the next generation of leadership out of Israel. So he's stripping leadership and he's holding hostage the current leaders by holding their kids. But that's not the only thing he does. He, he could have put them in prison and done that. But no, the second one is far more devious. He wants to mold these teenagers into faithful Babylonians. He wants to take these 13 and 14 and 15 year olds and turn them into something they never were. Pagans. Young men who are more committed to their new nation than they are their covenant God of Israel. Yet if he was going to do this, he had to strip them of their past identity. He needed to strip them of their religion and convictions and slowly win their hearts. That's what he's trying to do. Because we, in, fact, in fact, we need to see that because this helps us see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in this threefold training program. So you see, by immersing these young men in this, in this training program, this literature and language of the Chaldeans, what he's doing here is he's indoctrinating them into a completely new culture. He's giving them new mythologies and new ideas and new philosophies, a new way to think about life. They're not studying anything but Babylonian culture and history and religion. By granting them every luxury and delicacy that came across his own table, his food, he's appealing to their flesh and he's grooming them for greater loyalty. And by giving them entirely new names, he's trying to reshape their fundamental sense of national identity and religious devotion by changing their names. See, especially when it comes to changing their names, I want you to see, see here, like in, in the Hebrew text, something we can't see in our English, is it, is it the word that's used here for naming isn't the normal use, word that they use in Hebrew for naming somebody, which would be this Hebrew word, word kara, to call. No, Daniel doesn't use that word here. He actually uses the word seem, which is, means to set or to place. And it's a word that's most commonly used of God himself when God places his name on his people, his name on his, his city, or his name on his temple. So, so there's a deeper theological significance and, a, and an, a supernatural sense to this. In fact, we see this when, when we look at their names. We compare them. And, and, and to be honest, the scholars kind of, they, they wrestle with the, the Babylonian names because they've been intentionally altered in the Hebrew text. But this is what they suggest. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. It's changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel, which is the god Marduk, protect his life. Completely changed. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, was renamed Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is the moon god. You, you getting a theological change here? Michel, who is what God is. That's his name. Renamed Meshach. What's his name mean now? 
who is what Aku is. And Azariah, Yahweh has helped, is renamed Abednego. Most likely it means servant of Nebo, which is the God of wisdom. Notice they've taken away their identity as God's covenant people, names that bore the name of Yahweh, and replaced it with pagan names that refer to pagan gods. As one commentator explains, the name changes may seem inconsequential to us, but they're designed to do three things. To destroy every vestige of their Jewish roots, to erase every remnant of their Jewish religion, and to make them think of themselves every time they hear their name in expressly Babylonian terms. Completely cut loose. Yet as we transition to verses 8 through 16, we see a significant development in the story. See, from the outside, the Babylonians think that their plan is working. It's going according to plan, but, it, but it's not because the Babylonians may have set a name on Daniel and his friends, but Daniel and his friends are not easily changed because Daniel responds by setting his heart. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew. He sets his heart against the king's food. But this presses us the question, why? Why why does he focus on the food? And and there's some things that make sense to us as we look through here and scholars highlight and and we we can certainly agree. Some scholars suggest, hey, the king's food is, it's including meats that were forbidden under the law of Moses. We see laid out in Leviticus 11, 1 through 23, all kinds of things that he can and can't eat. But while this is likely true, It doesn't fully explain why Daniel and his friends are also not wanting to drink the wine. So so some other scholars kind of wrestling with this have suggested that Daniel's request is motivated by the fact that, that, that the common practice was to offer food and drink and everything to the pagan gods before it was consumed. So, so the, the offering of food was an act of worship that was then consumed by those in the king's court. Paul talks about this kind of thing in 1 Corinthians, right? And I, I mean, it's, it could certainly be true. But the thing is, we, we don't really, I mean, we don't have a way to know that Daniel could really know that the vegetables weren't part of this process as well. So, so I'm not discounting those things. I think that those, those play into it. But a number of scholars really suggest, what's this big motivation about the food? It said it had a detrimental impact on Daniel's heart. He recognized. What what I mean by this is that he recognized the conscience searing and allegiance grooming hook that was buried in the sumptuous food and the amazing delicacies that flowed from the table. They came from one place. They came from one person. They came to the king. Receiving all of those wonderful things was one of Nebuchadnezzar's way to slowly bind their hearts to him. If they wash out of the program, what do they lose? 
the amazing food, the amazing treatment, things they never could have imagined ever having are lost. It gives them increasing reasons to go along with the program. See, when we see it this way, Daniel's diet seems to be a subtle but intentional act of resistance to guard his heart from the nonstop pleasures of Babylon. And in this, we're able to see something about Daniel himself. He's not interpreting his current circumstances as an indication that God is absent or that God is impotent or that God is any less worthy of his steadfast devotion now that he's in exile. No, no, to put it in terms of our main point today, Daniel's resolve is motivated by the fact that he realizes wherever you find yourself in life, God is always there. He is always worthy. Always. And even though Daniel doesn't have a promise that God will intervene on his behalf, we look in the text, we don't see any indication that he, he's given a sign that God is going to work on his behalf. God pours out his grace in the most silent and sovereign way when Daniel tries to find a way to change the smallest things in his life, the food. God gives him favor with his superiors. Notice, God gives. God gives it. Daniel doesn't manipulate. God gives it. And even though we're not told that God blesses it, it you know, clearly in the text, this 10-day vegetable diet, we have to see the plan of God and the hand of God in it because anybody that's ever gone on a diet in their life knows that 10 days does not give you very much. Especially that's going to be noticeable in comparison to everybody else. Right? I mean, 10 days, you're kind of at that place going, did it do anything? Should I still do it? I don't know yet, right? This is God's hand. Let me just stop here and take a note of application. Often we put it at the end, but I thought this would be good to grab here. Christian resistance, I think we see in this text, is often an exercise in self-denial. Christian resistance is often an exercise in self-denial. See, see, I, I don't really think the main idea of the book is, is Christian resistance or resistance, though, though certainly we have themes of resistance in the book all over the place. Yet as we read through it, we see Daniel and his friends choosing their battles very wisely. They, they don't lash out at everything that's going on in their life. I mean, we look, we look at Daniel. What does he not do? He, he doesn't start um, a, a resistance cell. He doesn't try to escape back to Jerusalem. He doesn't plot an assassination attempt. I mean, there's all kinds of things that he doesn't do. In fact, he doesn't even appear to protest his name change. But when it came to the explicit commands of the law and to the allegiance corrupting power of the king's food, Daniel takes a stand. But here's the key. Of the places he chose to take a stand and resist, it was a resistance that required his own self-denial. 
So what does this have to do with Christian resistance in our day and age? Well, I think we need to recognize that while our resistance at times may require big moments like the fiery furnace, big moments like the lion's den. There are moments like that. Much of our resistance in this life, much of our resistance in this life should be directed at the everyday things in our culture that slowly quench our affections for God and quietly nurture our affections for the world. Isn't that what's going on most of the time? There's countless things in our culture that, that are doing two things, quenching our affections for God and they, are, and they are nurturing our affections for the world. I mean, kinds of questions we could ask here. This is, this is not an exhaustive list. This is a short bullet point list. I mean, like, 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 what kind of media am I consuming? Whose worldviews and political views am I adopting? What kind of entertainment, movies or shows or YouTube videos am I watching? Does my viewing, reading, podcasting habits, do they affirm my Christian beliefs or cause me to grow and cause me to grow in my love for God and other people? Or do they cause me to grow in my love for this world? Questions we can ask ourselves. How much time and effort with everything else I do in my life, everything else I consume, am I putting into the simple means of grace in my life? When we talk about the simple means of grace, we're talking about time in prayer, time in God's word, meaningful fellowship within the local church. The very things that help us combat the world to begin with. See, what I want you to see here is that while Christian res- resistance is, is necessary in this life, and, and it feels even more necessary every day we turn on the news, a large portion of our resistance is recognizing the hidden and not-so-hidden dangers that are all around us, just like Daniel did. The seemingly innocuous and somewhat enjoyable cultural norms that slowly draw our hopes and our joys and our allegiances away from God and they anchor them in the things of this world. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things that are in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. And why does this matter? Why does this matter? Verse 17, and the world, it's passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're missing it. See, we see that this call to self-denying resistance is not an attempt, please, it's not an attempt to resurrect the old-fashioned judgmental legalism of bygone years. That, that's not what it is. It's an exhortation to anchor our hopes and our dreams and our joys in the things that will never pass away. That's what it is. Even more, it's a reminder that God is more than able to provide for and to protect for his people when they put him first. 
Because as we transition to verse 17 through 20, we, we see a subtle shift in God's grace and his sovereign work, work and, that, and that he works in a more subversive role. A subversive role that inevitably catapults Daniel and his friends into the highest level of Nebuchadnezzar's service. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them. Did you notice that again? Third time. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Chapter 1, verse 2. God gives Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, he gives Daniel and his friends favor. And verse 17, he gives these young men spiritual capacities that are well beyond their years and human ability. God gives. We're told that God gives them learning. Some of your Bibles say knowledge here. And what we're talking about here, we're talking about learning and knowledge. It's more than the ability to reproduce, memorize facts. Now, now I'm, I'm all for memorization, like like... This isn't a time to critique teaching methods. I felt times tables were really helpful for me. But really, we're talking about learning here. It, it's, it's, it's really pressing more into the ability to integrate learned facts, the, the information we learn, into a life that pleases God by prudently responding to the daily challenges of life. It's like, it's, how's it being put to use? Skill and wisdom kind of have an overlapping sense here. They, they, they have a spiritual dimension and these terms describe the grace-empowered ability to understand and to follow God's ways even when facing the most challenging circumstances. Gifts from God. I mean, it's pretty obvious on the whole dream interpretation thing, like that's not normal human thing, like that's a gift from God. But this is important. What they're getting is not just the ability to consume and master information, but to actually make that jump that I think many of us struggle with in our lives. How do I take what I know and put it to use in everyday life? That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing. And that's what makes them stand out. Verse 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like. And get this, it's their Hebrew names. It's their Hebrew names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. No, no, no. So why why do these men stand out? They, They stand out because God enabled them to wisely apply the knowledge of their studies to the complex reality of running a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is not just asking what's two times two. He's asking them complex questions about how they'd, how they'd approach tasks and do things. And he's recognizing these guys are stellar. 
They're, they're men who could think and plan and lead the countless other officials in his kingdom that can only do one thing, and that's to follow orders. Like, like every kingdom needs the guy who's following the orders, but it also needs the people who can really lead and see and work through the hard questions. And that's what God has done. But why would God do this? Why? He did it so that Nebuchadnezzar would take notice and to promote them to the highest levels of government. God sent them into exile to place them at the highest reaches of authority in the kingdom of Babylon. Does that sound like another story you've heard maybe? A little bit like Joseph, maybe? That's what God's doing. See, see, even though Daniel and his friends are central to the storyline in chapter one, I want you to see that this the threefold repetition in this chapter, God gave, em- emphasizes the glorious but hidden reality that every aspect of these young men's lives was under his sovereign control. Did God God cause his people to suffer defeat and exile? Yes, but in the very first chapter, what does God do? The losers, by his providence, become the winners. Before we get to the end of the first chapter. Helping us see once again that wherever you find yourself in life, God is always there. God always deserves our allegiance. He always deserves our glory. God is always there. He's ready to act. He hasn't abandoned us. So as we conclude, I'd like to touch on two notes of application at the end here. Number one, a big view of God empowers the tiniest steps of faith. A big view of God empowers the tiniest steps of faith. See, as we we read in the text, if we start at verse three, verses three through seven, the whole the whole education thing, getting new names. You know what? It doesn't have stamped across it when we read. It doesn't have crisis stamped across it in big red letters. Like, 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 like the moment Nebuchadnezzar sets up the statue, we're getting ahead of ourselves, chapter three, and he commands everybody to worship it. Like, like, like we got flashing red lights, crisis. We get, we get to Daniel and the lackeys that want to throw him under the bus and they come to the king with their plan. We have crisis before Daniel comes into the picture. But going to school, getting some slabs of bacon, getting a new name doesn't have crisis written across it. See, so the threat in this chapter seems to be rather small when we compare it to everything else. But when we view these three events in light of the spiritual significance of Judah's defeat and the desecration of the temple, 
we're, we're able to see that the resistance in each of these men's lives was driven by a massive view of God. It might not have been the same kind of crisis, but they saw it as a crisis and they took a step because they saw God in a way that the people around them weren't seeing him. Daniel and his friends chose faithfulness because they believed that God was with them and worthy of their faithfulness despite their present circumstances. Remember, from, from, a, from an ancient civilization's view, they have every reason to believe that God is not their God or he's not able to do anything. Yet, what do they do? They anchor their every hope in him. And as we're going to see, these tiny steps of faith at the beginning of the book are preparing these men to plant their feet when the far greater threats arrive. In many ways, it is these smaller steps that prepare us for the big steps. Which brings me to the second point. That honestly, uh, I've, I've adapted from our marriage study this last week. It just fits so well here. And it's this, if God doesn't rule the small mundane moments of your life, he doesn't rule you. That, that's from Paul Tripp, by the way. If God doesn't rule the small mundane moments of your life, he doesn't rule you. See, this is important for us to see because you and I don't live the majority of our Christian lives in really big moments. We don't. No, we, we live out our Christian life in a million tiny, seemingly insignificant moments of life. They don't seem to be important. Moments, moments that challenge our faithfulness to God and they slowly shape our character for better or for worse. One mundane moment after the next mundane moment shaping us into the person that we're going to be, increasing or decreasing our faithfulness to God. As Paul Tripp put it in his... In his Study. For most Christians, we only have three to four big moments in our entire life. See, see, God doesn't want to merely rule the big decisions of your life, Christian. He doesn't want to just rule the big moments. He wants to rule the everyday stuff of your life. All the little moments. The good times, the bad times, little league games, 30 minutes after you walk in the house after work, 60 minutes after dinner, all those moments. Those are the moments that he wants to rule. And here's the good news. God, God isn't just standing out at the edge of the universe waiting to see what you'll do. No, Jesus has promised us. He's with us in each and every one of those moments just like he was with Daniel and his friends. He's here, he's present, he's with us. Let's, let's just close on a text that we all know if we've been in the church for any length of time, the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. 
I mean, that in and of itself should radically orientate how we live our lives. All authority, not some, not most, not occasional, all. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. What are we supposed to do? Go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that have commanded you. And there's so much involved in that. Big things and small things. But I actually want to latch on to the final sentence. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you. Wherever you're at right now in your life, high point, low point, somewhere in between, God is with you. And He's for you. And this call to pursue God's glory in the small, mundane moments of your life. As we close, I want you to see it's not a guilt-inducing call to try harder. It's not about producing guilt. It's really an exhortation to see and to savor and to find comfort and hope in the fact that our infinitely omnipotent God is the sovereign ruler over the tiniest things in life. Let's close in a word of prayer.